Hello, and you are listening to Eco Justice Radio, a project of SoCal 350 Climate Action. Our show presents environmental and climate stories from a social justice frame featuring voices not necessarily heard on traditional, mainstream, or even public media outlets. Welcome. I am Jessica Aldridge. On today's show, A Farm Grows in L.A., Urban Farming with Avenue 33. Host Carrie Kim interviews regenerative farmers Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer, who launched a 1.2-acre farm just outside downtown Los Angeles in 2018. The urgency of our times is leading a back-to-land consciousness shift inspired by indigenous worldviews where urban people once again grow their own food and reconnect to the natural cycles of sun, water, and soil. Regenerative agriculture refers to a type of farming that employs a culture of reciprocity, respect, and interrelations with all beings, going beyond organic to actively regenerate the natural resources used while supporting healthy, thriving communities. Our guests, Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer, share their insights, successes, and challenges of farming an urban hillside in arid Southern California. Today, we learn how regenerative farming restores the hydrological cycle, promotes biodiversity, sequesters carbon, mitigates climate change, and accelerates the return of health and biology to the soil. Thank you for tuning into A Farm Grows in L.A., Urban Farming with Avenue 33. Aloha, this is Carrie Kim, and you're listening to Eco Justice Radio. Today, we'll be diving into the potential of urban farming and the regenerative possibilities that exist amidst urban density. We hear from Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer, both farmers of Avenue 33 Farm, a 1.2 acre farm practicing regenerative farming in Lincoln Heights. Welcome to the show, Eric and Ali. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for joining us and being an inspiration right here in the thick of it. So we <laughs> want to first um, begin by honoring the Tongva ancestors as our show is located on Tongva lands, a.k.a. Los Angeles. So we always begin with that uh, recognition. Please begin by giving us the backstory. You know, I'm wondering before you two began Avenue 33, your farm in 2018, were you two already farmers yeah at different times you know we've farmed since really since we were both in college um, definitely always been growing food and then we previously lived in in oregon where we had been part of starting a farm with like a group of friends mm-hmm. um, so the entire time we were there uh, we were renting land just outside of the city so we've been on and off Farming almost always, you know, as a side job. Um, and then in Los Angeles, we had a, a community garden plot before finding the land that we currently use to farm in Lincoln Heights. So we had oh. a community garden plot that we grew and we looked for land the whole time. Yeah, so it was like a kind of five-year process of looking for land before kind of finding the situation that we have now, yeah. Where was the community garden plot? It's located in East Hollywood, kind of one block away from the 101 Highway, Vermont and Beverly area. 
Uh, I think I know which one where, where you guys are talking about. Yeah, right. That's a lot, right? We need more of that, definitely, and more of what you guys are doing with the urban farming, for sure. You know, I, uh, I was reading about your guys' sort of background, and it's really amazing, uh, Eric, how you were, you sound like you were a self-taught chef, but yet you were supporting yourself, working with the, the cooking the foods in order to, you know, learn or what support your farming habit is what I read. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, self. I wouldn't say self-taught. <laughs> I've been lucky enough uh, both in farming and cooking um, to learn from uh, some really incredible people, um, but not, you know, traditionally taught in like a academic or, you know, school right. setting. Yeah. Yeah. But it's amazing. I read that you were a chef de cuisine at Squirrel and, you know that you worked in the Michelin star kitchen in Providence, and and then Ali, you had done editing for Portlandia, and I understand you have a avid interest in filmmaking, making, and I guess TV as well. Yo, yeah, that's uh, the way we ended up in Los Angeles. Is mm-hmm. I kind of followed career opportunities uh-huh. um, in film and television, and ended up in Los Angeles, which uh, was such a pleasant surprise. I absolutely love it. <laughs> I come from Minnesota and so the weather I was like <laughs> you don't have to bundle up year round and there's less mosquitoes I just think Los Angeles is a really special place so yeah yeah well it's always um an interesting place to land when you've come from somewhere else especially weather-wise and and for farmers you know it's an incredible place to be right do you guys sell also at the farmers markets, or you don't? You mostly do it just kind of um, with CSAs and direct to people. Yeah, so we have a CSA, and we have, uh, and then we have some wholesale clients. So we sell through like another farm box, and then a small grocery store, mm-hmm. um, and then we we have a few different um, like restaurant. Um, private chef catering company clients, um, which have been, you know, a little interrupted lately, but still kind of every every now and then we'll have some of those clients um, get Mm -hmm. stuff. The CSA has been recent. So that was, we were both have have been working and Allie's still working. Um, I was working for the Salvation Army Um, when when kind of during the pandemic the csa we started yeah so um are you still doing that work with the salvation army now or now you're more exclusively working with just the farm no yeah so i'm i'm not doing it at the moment i was like an independent contractor Mm -hmm. Uh, i was doing workforce development for them with uh, like culinary workforce development so working with the kitchen and working with clients living at the shelter Mm -hmm. and that yeah we're we're on pause um and that kind of remains to be right COVID pause, right yeah, exactly. so, the, yeah, the renowned we'll covid pause also is happening <laughs> in shelters and yeah. well, the covid pause is great for farming and gardening and getting people back to the land i think that's been one of the great blessings of covid because people are doing that it's been the solace i think for many people yeah it's been really incredible and i mean we've had uh, so many people reach out you know, during this time to kind of come volunteer and, you know, just interested in their own garden that they're starting at home, interested in some of like, you know, the regenerative practices that we use and how they might be able to use them at home. So are you guys also doing some consulting work in that regard? Are you pretty much just 
share that information sort of like open source and share it with people as they come to know yeah. you on the farm? Yeah, share it open source. I mean, especially for like any kind of like home home grower or, you know, we have, we have friends with a lot of different kind of people, people growing in various kind of commercial ventures around LA. And so, yeah, always kind of, we've always been pretty open with it. You know, we've, we've over the years learned from a lot of just like really generous people. And so we've kind of, have always taken that approach where we want to kind of be generous as well with what we've learned, you know? That's and encourage. Uh-huh. Yeah. Encourage people, yeah. Yeah, as many people as possible to grow food in their own place or in their house or herbs on the windowsill. Any way we can encourage people to grow a little bit of their own food is a really fun way to start to understand growing cycles and understanding how to eat what you grow is always a really exciting part of the whole process of farming. Especially for people in the urban setting, because a lot of people have never grown their own food. I always marvel at the statistic that like around the 1950s, there was at least 50% of people had a home garden and that dwindled to, you know, it's, it's a really sad statistic now, but hopefully it's on the rise again, you know? Yeah, we hope that more people take up growing some food. It's a really, really fun, exciting way to learn how to eat. What better way to spend their time, really? You know, I, <laughs> in this time with more and more people retreating in this, well, I would say the pandemic time, more people are retreating from the cities and rediscovering that they would like to have a simpler or more rural kind of lifestyle or just setting. And I'm wondering, did you two, you followed the work here, but was it ever was it ever your intention to begin a farm here before you came here? I mean, did you know that coming in or was that just? I think we've always specific or I've always specifically been very interested in urban farming. I think it's something that is extremely appealing and exciting to me. Um, getting people to, <laughs> you know, have, like helping people to understand where their food comes from and having the food grown right where it's consumed mm -hmm. and be able to support our food system within a city, um, utilizing the space and land that we have within this city. And Los Angeles is so special in that way, in that it's more of a suburban city, like more people do have front and backyards and there are open spaces like the one that we found on the hillside. So Los Angeles topography and the, the geography of the city is extremely unique in that sense and I think growing food is a really important part of helping to make this city helping to make like food access really a real possibility within the city of LA. Yeah absolutely I mean it is so key for everyone to be growing again and I think it's nice for people to remain in the city for that reason so that the city doesn't just become something dystopic and just more and more concretized and urbanized. And we already have seen that. I mean, you guys have seen that over the, what, you've been here five years, is it? Oh, we've seven. been here like seven or eight. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I'm sure you guys have witnessed in just that short span of time because it accelerated a lot, uh, just the, the building, you know, the yeah, development absolutely. all over uh, downtown. So we need more people doing what you guys are doing because there's less and less of um, visible land that can inspire people in this way. You know, it's so inspiring to see the pictures 
of your farm going from, can you guys tell us what your farm was when you first, when you bought the land, what was there already growing when you arrived? It looks like it was pretty vacant. Yeah, I mean, it was just, well, so, you know, we live in Lincoln Heights. And so, you know, for people who aren't sure that neighborhood, it's, it's kind of Northeast of downtown. If you look up and there's all the hills up there. And so there are a bunch of native walnut and oak. And so we have a handful of each, um, especially in, there's like a gully um, oh. kind of borders our property. It's kind of all oak and, and walnut. Um, but then the hillside itself, yeah, it was just, yeah, pretty blank. I mean, it, it grows grass year after year, you know, like most of the hillsides, like anybody who's been here when it's raining, you know, and, and the hills get green. Um, uh, yes. So it, over the years, just been grass, yeah. And there's been a mix of uh, trees of heaven and invasive tree. We have a black acacia <laughs> tree that's also invasive and a lot of poison oak. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, when we moved in, it was a brown dead grass that's cut for fire clearances. And so it's like a very just blank brown hillside. Mm -hmm. And then as we've been like working on the soil and, and starting to grow more things, we really realized the first year we moved in, it was an exceptional rain year. And the grass, the native grass grew taller than I was. It was like six feet tall. And it yeah. was such an incredible gift of that year just yeah. to see these native grasses come back so strong. Um, Nothing so competes long. with rainwater. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was really exciting. Yeah. That's incredible. Well, can you guys tell us a little bit about that journey of what it was like to lease that vacant land? Because you know, how it kind of maybe led you into having this hillside focus, because maybe it wasn't your original, you know, vision, but. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not, not our uh, original vision. Farming uh, on a hillside is not easier than farming on flat land. In yeah. fact, it's way more difficult, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, it's, it's, you know, like you're saying with the pictures, like it's, it's very beautiful and really, really pretty farming on a hillside but yeah very difficult kind of from a physical standpoint and can be can be challenging but yeah I mean we we got the land and then so a lot of times uh, you know in terms of a hillside you're worried about erosion um, you're worried right. about water water movement down the hill and so what we did is went through and marked out um, all the contour lines mm -hmm. so if you think of like a hiking map with all those kind of squiggly lines around it. <laughs> those are parallel lines and so using the contour lines we kind of mapped out what would become the farm in a way that used the natural landscape so that we wouldn't um, have as, as high of a risk of erosion mm. um, yeah. Were you, were you guys using permaculture design principles in that or just, I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely permaculture design plays a big role in that. Regenerative principles, uh, you know, keyline design is, is another one. It's within kind of that permaculture sphere mm -hmm. um, that, that deals a lot with water movement and, and kind of the shape of the land. Um, and so that was really helpful. And then, yeah, I mean, over, over the years, like looking, you know, farming on 
sloped land isn't common in the U.S., but it's really common um, it's, it's, in a lot yeah, of other places. Right, yeah, places um, like terrace farming, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and like, so looking to, you know, farmers in like South America and India and some of the Bali practices and, uh -huh, yeah. and some How of the plants that they're using to kind of help us in this process. Have you incorporated some of those practices or have you been able to integrate them at all there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, we've interplanting um, has been a big part of what we do. Uh, so, you know, um, interplanting like trees and tree crops as well as vegetative crops. So if you have a contour line down a hill, uh, you can kind of plant a line of trees that kind of act as like an anchor. Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll be there many, many years, have these deep roots. Um, and then in between these like rows of trees, uh, you can plant lower perennials and then also annuals. And using those trees to kind of like create terraces almost. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've also recently been using, uh, it's called vetiver grass. Uh -huh. um, and so that's used, I think it's native to India um, and used a lot in uh, kind of steep slopes and has mm. super deep roots. Mm. Um, and for a grass, doesn't really have a spreading habit. So it doesn't spread and actually has, I think, sterile seeds. Okay. Um, it's like traditionally been used uh, as a way of stabilizing hillsides. Mm. Um, and, and in America, it is used you know if you're uh when you're driving on the highway or something and you see like a bunch of black mesh and they're planting plants in uh -huh. uh, some on a steep steep hillside sometimes that's vetiver grass yeah. uh, well that's really good to know because uh, i mean i think what you guys are doing i'm sure there will be many more people inspired and especially you know i was reading about your process and getting the land that you know that land was unbuildable right, for a typical development. So that's why it was, you know, more affordable and so forth. So I think it's a great, a great way for people to, to look at land as, you know, having a possibility of a farm, even if it is on a slope, you know? And we right. need that, as, as you guys know, for soil erosion and what happens here with fires and, right? Our yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thinking about fires, the farm can act as a defensible space. So we do have to clear for um, fire control on the hillside, but the way that it's irrigated and it'll help protect the houses for their fire on the hillside. So sure. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you guys have come from a different place, right? I mean, if, if Portland was your location right before here, to come from a place with you know more rainwater and then come to here was probably a big was that a big learning curve or was it shocking or you know <laughs> yeah. the world of fire and and sort of drought addled land i you know right yeah i mean and we we moved here kind of in the, in the middle of the drought so it was like you know four years really no rain um, mm -hmm. coming from yeah a, a place where pretty much seven months, eight months a year. <laughs> Everything you think about in your mentality of growing food is kind of opposite in 
in Los Angeles than it is in most of the rest of the country that I grew up growing in. And so you read the back of a seed packet and usually it'll say, plant before the last frost. Or, <laughs> the last frost date. And then I was kind of scratching my head being like, yeah. okay, well, how do I calculate knowing that there's sometimes no frost? Right. Um, and then thinking about all the seasonality as completely opposite. So everything you'd think of as a summer crop here is actually more delicious and maybe a better time to better time to grow in the winter yeah. or in the summer. I think that's a big part of, of what our hope is. And, and as we've been able to dedicate more time to the farm to really focus on creating, you know, like crop guides essentially specific for Los Angeles mm -hmm. um, because oh, most yeah. of the information that you find really isn't for here. Um, you know, I think most places like in Oregon, like our, our goal is is really to like jam everything into this really short season. Okay. I'm going to uh, stop you right there, Eric. We need to take a break and then we'll come right back and get no, right back into it. You are listening to EcoJustice Radio, a public-supported media outlet. Please consider making a donation to ensure that we can continue to provide socially and environmentally driven content. Donations can be made at EcoJustice Radio and at SoCal350.org. We hope you're enjoying this episode, A Farm Grows in L.A., Urban Farming with Avenue 33, with regenerative farmers Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer, and host Carrie Kim. Yeah, so a big part of what we're working on is creating um, kind of growing guides for, for different crops, uh, both vegetables and flowers, kind of specific to here in Los Angeles, because a lot of that information is pretty difficult to find, and, and our seasons here are kind of opposite of, of where you'd grow normally. So it's like most places you're, you're really focused on the summer, Whereas here, the summer is kind of the worst time to right. be Right, so hot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for some things, even in tomatoes, there will be a few weeks of the summer where it's uh, even too hot for them to grow yeah. well. Yeah, well, I think it's a matter of really um, restoring all of the soil here because we know when we speak to, uh, to indigenous peoples and natives of the land, I mean, when you hear of how it was, this place was Serengeti up in the north, and there were so many places that were fertile. The riparian pathways were just something completely different than what we have now, you know, with channelized water. And, and so it's been this long history of a very um, kind of almost artificial environment now, you know, yeah. has been created here compared to what it once was. So hopefully that will be changing, and it is changing. People are, are doing many different things, but it's just a matter of time. Yeah, we live right by the Los Angeles River, and that was a huge floodplain. And we were talking with our neighbor whose grandparents lived here, and I think she's in her 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the first house on the block, and she was explaining how this used to all be a farmland. It was uh, like citrus and nuts. Mm -hmm. I think it was like hazelnuts. Or, yeah, some kind of nut crop. And so kind of thinking about that ancestry and thinking about how these hillsides get good airflow and, and the way it was used mm -hmm. uh, traditionally is exciting to to try to bring a little bit of that back. Well, it's but interesting to consider the different, the many, many dormant seeds in the lands all over here because there were so many farms, so many different seeds exist in this soil just waiting for the right conditions, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So you guys have mentioned that you want to be an incubator model for hillside plots to help empower other people who want to begin urban farms and you know help with school gardens and planting methods, home scale projects. And so what what exactly does that look like for you guys? And have you are you making inroads to support other people doing that? I mean, is there something specifically being done? Um, yeah, I mean, right. So a lot of things are on COVID pause. Um, <laughs> COVID pause, right. So, yeah. Right. So we had been started talking to the American Heart Association who sponsor a lot wow. of uh, school gardens. And That's amazing. Uh, we wanted, yeah, so, so part of kind of the plan, and, and again, both of us were working full time, so I think our plan kind of uh, has accelerated in some ways and, and paused in others. Um, so the idea would be that we would kind of yeah, help some of the school gardens uh, with like planting plans, produce some starts potentially um, so that they can focus more on kind of like the educational component and we can kind of help a little bit with like the farm planning mm -hmm. side of it. And then now that we're here full time, or at least I'm here full time, you know, we're working on um because we we get a lot of volunteers so working on kind of uh, restructuring our volunteer program to be uh, a little bit more focused on like learning how to farm learning kind of the business side of it and a little bit more detailed rather than just like coming and helping plant garlic for a day more structured, um, you mean more of a structure? Yeah, yeah, more structured around it for people that are interested in like learning to farm. Um, That's amazing for that to happen here because I'm sure there's many, many more people who would like to learn that and need to learn that also. I mean, I think the other yeah. thing that COVID pointed out for a lot of people is everyone needs to have food sovereignty, everyone needs to have access to food. I think yeah. with uh, a great education for many people who have never seen a break in the supply chain. To realize that affects everyone so yeah even yeah. our neighbors who have an amazing green thumb they have a beautiful flower garden they were saying oh my god i had no idea that's what the peppers look like or i've never seen this kind of cucumber i think <laughs> you know? and, and during the beginning of the pandemic when it there was scarcity in the grocery stores and having that fear just dropping some produce off at all of our neighbors' house, reminding them that it's going to be okay and that our neighborhood will be resilient, I think is an added benefit during a time of great fear and a great way to bring community together. Yeah, I'm sure people were, a lot of people were depending on what you guys were producing. You know? Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of how we ended up doing the CSA. Oh, you weren't doing it before? No, not before COVID. Yeah, I mean, because we were both working full time, we didn't really okay. have the time for that. We just sold uh, wholesale. Yeah, we okay. just did wholesale before. So, um, yeah, that's been, yeah, just really, yeah, I mean, talking to neighbors, talking to friends and, and people reaching out that had known about the farm and, and mm -hmm. just really wanting, you know, produce and to feel kind of safe in their food choice. Um, how are you how are you guys handling the, the CSA? How do you guys handle the farm in general? I mean, are you pretty much dependent on those volunteers or do you employ a certain amount of staff? Like how do you guys run? I mean, a one point <laughs> two acre farm sounds like not that much, but in reality, we know that is a lot yeah. of labor required to do that, to harvest the food, to package the food, to ship, to distribute it. All of that takes a lot of time and effort. So 
It, it really I'm does. Doing it. I'm tired. <laughs> like, I mean, it's always like uh, you know when people are interested in like farming and, and like oh I want to buy some land. I'm always I always recommend like work on a farm for a while before you know. And our size is even smaller than most right. of the farms like we've worked on. So yeah. a lot of manual labor of bringing buckets of dirt mm -hmm. up and down. Hillside, um, but usually we, we structure the week, um, you know, around we try to like segment days to do specific tasks, and so bed prep happens on a certain day, planting happens, um, mm -hmm. harvesting. So, trying to be like very regimented and really right. trying to not waste a lot of time, which mm -hmm. is difficult, you know, <laughs> a big part of like learning from other farms, you know, is, is you kind of can, it can learn how to problem solve, uh, but I, you know, we've, we've been on a lot of different farms and helped start a couple of different farms. And, um, you know, that process of seeing different ways that people solve problems on, on the land, um, has been really helpful because, you know, when things go wrong, you kind of have to be able to, and of course, really quickly, or you know, you end up losing things. Oh, right. You know, and, and the smaller the scale, kind of the more stressful and impactful that mm -hmm. is. Um, you know, if if it's a several acres and you have a whole lot of planted space uh, and you lose a bed, not that big a deal. But on our scale, if we lose a bed, it it really has a pretty big effect. Sure. We also have we. We have a, a roommate that works one day a week and that's tremendously helpful. Mm -hmm. um, also just to bring consistency and another person who kind of understands what's happening at the farm. And right. in addition to our volunteers, and right now we're kind of focused on ones that have been with us for a while and they kind of know what's going on and they come week after week to add a little extra COVID security. We have another person that comes on our harvest days and helps as a as an employee i guess but you've had to shrink down right the volunteer days because of COVID. i mean before you had like yeah. one people and now it's like down to however many you can have right, right. So, yeah before we were doing like larger volunteer days and we'd cook a bunch of food and have it be kind of like a mm -hmm. more of a community event right. um, around right. the farm and yeah now it's uh you know one person or one you know family unit and then it's a little bit difficult um and, and one of the reasons why right now it's a lot of it is is people who have volunteered over time because we, we uh, there's a lot of instruction involved and so it's difficult right. right now to work really closely but you know it's outside and we can right. be 50 feet apart from each right. other and sure. so um yeah. Well, are most of the people who are coming to you were they people who are novices, or they're people who did some gardening, or they knew had some some background or understanding already about farming or regenerative practices? And yeah, it varies. a mix. Yeah. yeah, I think um, I would say about half of the people that came and now are regular volunteers had some interest, or they had helped out on a farm. Uh, one person helped out on a farm for a year or two and so had a decent amount of experience mm -hmm. and then the others brand new. 
never knew anything about gardening or farming or any of it, so. Great to inspire those people though. You know, you had said, Eric, uh, in an interview that I had read, I think it was in the Times, that you were uh, determined to make the land productive and profitable as soon as possible. And, you know, two years in the making, I'm just wondering where you guys in the, are in that um, process of achieving those goals, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's been better than we've expected in a lot of ways. I mean, we had kind of been building the farm and building the infrastructure. And because both of us were working, like it was at this point where it could become um, a full-time job for me, like it could replace my income. Uh -huh. um, and then with COVID that kind of got accelerated uh, really quickly because mm -hmm. I was out of work. Um, okay, there you go, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was like, oh, I was like, you know, we've, we've been, today. Yeah. yeah, right. We've been like, well, we'll see. Like, we both love our work and um, you know, really enjoy it. And so, um, but yeah, so it's been really good this year. I mean, and also, you know, people have been really interested especially in, in the beginning of the pandemic in like local right sure like I mean, I'm sure that's probably a boon just like with the markets you know just regular like health food markets it says that's what people have been dependent upon and and you are an anchor for people you know of stability in these times so. I mean, yeah yeah <laughs> i mean and like you know yeah i mean it's like really you know, kind of a weird situation but like yeah like our our grocery store account and like our other csa box account like kind of exploded um their business um i mean yeah. have you encountered times where you just cannot meet the demand i mean has that happened we right can't now, ever meet yeah we're currently yeah. in a state of never <laughs> meeting the demand which i think is a good thing yeah. you know in yeah. the city of good los problem. angeles like we're never going to feed the whole city and so we hope that we are always more in demand that we can produce and we can right. help with education and be an inspiration more than actually feeding the whole city. That's never our goal. Yeah, it would be a pretty, a pretty uh, huge one. Yeah, I mean, because I went onto your site and it's like sold out, sold out, sold out. But I think, you know, I figured that was a good thing, you know. It is, yeah. yeah. And we, the good thing about being sold out all the time is every time we harvest something, it's already sold. And mm -hmm. so there's right. no already it's sold almost before you sell it, right? Before it's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, before it's picked, it's sold. And so that's like a great way of having zero waste as opposed to going mm -hmm. to market and then not feeling like we have sold everything that we already harvested. Mm -hmm. and so, which yeah. is very perishable and flowers, which don't last as long once they're cut, it, it definitely helps stabilize our our um, flow of produce and flowers. So. Well, I, you know, with your grant, with Kiss the Ground, if you guys could talk a little bit about that and what that entails, because I know I understand it helps you pay for soil tests. And I'm wondering what you guys are testing in the soil and how often you're doing that, if you can help people, because, you know, I know some people have started urban farms and, you know, late in the game, find out they have a lot of lead in their soil and they have to shut completely down. And I just mm. wonder what, what you guys are doing and, what the soil tests entail for you right before we even like purchased the land we got a soil test so we saw the land and uh collected samples and sent it in even before purchasing it because just yeah. knowing what we wanted to do yeah. we wanted to make sure 
is this going to be a farm project where we can grow food or more of a remediation project where okay. we're working with heavy uh -huh. metals or mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. right. some kind right. of contamination that we want to be sure about. And so we did the soil test at the beginning and continue to do a soil test kind of an extended soil test every six months about. Mm -hmm. And so that's testing for, yeah, like heavy metals and like it's called a cation exchange, which mm -hmm. is essentially measuring how much available nutrients are um, available to the plants, how much nutrients are being yeah. available within the soil. So was the test better than what you guys anticipated or kind of what you expected or, you know? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely better than I think we anticipated. But again, like, you know, when, when you're talking about potential contamination, you know, this in an urban setting, you know, this is a, a hillside that has never been built on that had just been grass growing and, mm -hmm. and getting cut down mm -hmm. um, versus, you know, a more urban lot that's like in between houses you know or maybe had a house that burned down or you know has had like cars stored on it um okay so yeah i mean our our soil test was better than than we mm -hmm. expected and the soil was pretty good i mean it was it's it's designed was it, uh -huh. sorry go ahead was it pretty compacted your soil Yes and no. I mean, it's it's been growing grass, and so it's it's had right. things growing, but then the grass is cut down, and the soil bakes, and mm -hmm. you know, it's really hard. But mm -hmm. then the grass grows again, and so there was like some structure, and the nutrients were fine. You know, I mean, it, it was it's it's soil that was really good for growing grass in like drought conditions. Mm -hmm. So. It wasn't terrible, like it was, it was kind of better than we expected in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, so we get a soil test and then add a lot of compost. Mm -hmm. Well, you continue to do these soil tests. I mean, you're going to continue this or now? Yeah. So, you so yeah, so in terms of uh, the Kiss the Ground grant, so it's a three-year grant. And so they came year one and tested for a whole range of different things. So soil composition, our infiltration rate, so how fast water can can absorb into the soil, biological life, so measuring how like how much biological mass is within the soil, it's carbon sequestering, so how much carbon the soil is storing. And so then they'll test again at the end of three years. In that, pro during that time, uh, they have kind of like a, a consultant that works with us to kind of help us through some of the questions we have around like management of the property and management of the soil. Because uh, the aim is to have a really good outcome, right? To show a big change yeah. in your soil. Time. Right. And so, yeah, the idea is, right, like if, if we're going, if for Kiss the Ground, a lot of their work is around like larger policy around agriculture, you know, on like a state and national level. Right. Um, and so you need data, you know, right. to make those right. changes. And, and <laughs> this yeah. 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 And so for the most part, they work with, with larger farms and ranches, and they do work with some smaller farms um, like us um, mm -hmm. that also have like the ability to kind of like, you know, have people come to the farm much more easily and, and 
do more podcasts and Instagram and you know all the stuff that a lot of like larger farmers aren't necessarily have the time to do time to do sure yeah well we're seeing this model increase and that's a very good thing um we're going to take another uh short break right here and come right back to you guys you are listening to eco justice radio a public supported media outlet please consider making a donation to ensure that we can continue to provide socially and environmentally driven content. Donations can be made at ecojusticeradio.org or socal350.org. And we hope that you're enjoying this episode, A Farm Grows in LA, Urban Farming with Avenue 33, with regenerative farmers Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer and host Carrie Kim. So Eric, tell us about soil testing from a regenerative farming perspective. What would that entail um i think you know versus a larger scale agriculture and and so this is something too where if you're getting a soil test um as someone who's starting a new farm or just growing at home uh you know most of the soil tests and 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 the recommendations that come along with it um are going to involve non-organic ways of dealing with like any kind of chemical imbalances yeah. uh, and so it's like important to think about soil testing as like a very specific lens mm-hmm. um, like essentially what they're doing is taking your soil adding a bunch of chemicals kind of making these measurements and telling you like what was there okay. um, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to you know what's available to your plants or whether that's going to be like a good soil to grow plants in. Mm-hmm. Um, so for regenerative practices and a lot of practices, you know, that were uh, around long before kind of our modern agriculture um, was around mm-hmm. is focused on, you know, building soil, building soil life. And so really what you're looking at when you're looking at a soil test, it's going to be a readout of like all these nutrients and the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. And really it's just giving you a snapshot of like what's around, you know, for your soil biology. Mm -hmm. And so you want to kind of take it with a grain of salt to a certain degree and see if there's any like large issues. Um, But with that, you really want to be focusing on adding you know, healthy soil biology through compost or uh, compost teas um, and the practices that you use. Like you can make a soil test perfect, right. but if you're tilling and, and kind of destroying the soil life, you're not going to necessarily grow crops that are uh, nutrient dense or resistant to pests. Can you talk about tilling? Because that's a big topic, you know, about the tilling, no-till, organic farms that till. And it was really funny in the LA Times article how it said that you were tilling the land with your broad fork. And it just seemed like, I don't know, an odd word to put in there. I was like, yeah, yeah. you know, tilling, oh my God. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, there's a lot of. There's like a full spectrum of what we think of as till. Yeah or uh, disturbance of the ecosystem. Yeah. So we do shape the beds and we do work with shovels and we still touch the land, but ideally kind of the idea of around regenerative agriculture and in some permacultures or biodynamic 
ideas. The idea is you just don't want to disturb it as much as possible to allow all of the, the soil to become alive. And the more you disturb it, the less alive it stays. Mm -hmm. And so just trying to disturb it or till as little as possible. And so broad fork is the tool that we use in order to loosen up soil when needed and to work mm -hmm. amendments in deeper within the soil structure. And that's just a fork with a like, you know, I think it's like one foot tines yeah. on it. We okay. stand on it and it's all human powered. Mm -hmm. uh, that also helps being on a hillside. We can't really use right. equipment that mm -hmm. is heavier mm -hmm. than something I could lift. And right. so using that, we always try to minimize the amount that we disturb the soil biology and mm -hmm. keep living roots within the ground is another big practice. So as soon as we disturb the soil, we wanna replace it with other roots that are ready to feed the soil biology as mm -hmm. well. And mm -hmm. never using chemical fertilizers is another big part of our practices too, to help create soil biology that will be pest resistant and disease resistant and better drought tolerance and establish a good web of soil. And so that's working from our native soil and then incorporating a lot of these practices into a soil that will be good for growing food and produce and flowers and native plants as well. We like native plants. Share with us who some of your mentors, as you said, you guys have helped other people start their farms. I'm wondering who are your sort of mentors or um, you know, inspirations in the world of regenerative farming or soil health? And who do you guys look to you know, for guidance. Yeah, we listen to a lot of podcasts and we do a lot of research for... Through Kiss the Ground, we're connected with Jesse Smith of White Buffalo Lamb, okay, Trust, uh -huh. which he's a plethora of information. And I find our connection with Kiss the Ground to be really important for us because we have a, a farmer as well as our main contact and he's able to answer a lot of questions and mm -hmm. steer us and connect us with a lot of people and then like Eric said having a lot of classes and podcasts and online lectures and teachers that we look to for yeah. all sorts of things right now Eric's in a class yeah so I'm doing uh, a class with um it's a woman uh, a woman named Elaine Ingham Elaine Ingham yeah mm -hmm. so, so food web school so I'm Part of like our, our hope of helping growers in Los Angeles is getting certified to do soil testing, like biological. Oh, yes, testing. where you so, can see what's actually. Yeah, using a microscope to to analyze like the soil life that's in Ooh. your soil and and kind of manage the soil that way rather than through a soil test that's right. uh, like a chemical analysis. Yeah, so that would pretty much eliminate that, wouldn't it? For the most I mean, part. Again, like it's a it's a lens that can be useful. You know, I mean, you you want a, a certain balance going into the process, and for the soil life to kind of live within. Right. Um, so you still use it, but not as frequently, and, and using it just as a lens of one of the other ways of kind of seeing into the soil. Yeah. So those are a few of the people. Well, I mean, there's a yeah. lot of different books and podcasts that we listen to. Yeah, there's so. like the No-Till podcast. And okay. 
Yeah. Farm, farm small, farm smart is good. It's good. It's, it's good for us to share this with people so that they can also gain. Yeah, information. I could definitely send you know, some of the books that we really like too. So and we can post it up with your show. Please. Yeah, yeah, and different podcasts because there's also different like varying degrees of kind of like science density. <laughs> Grandlier. Oh. Grandlier. <laughs> yeah, okay. So some of them are like really, you know, where I like you know, maybe processing like five percent of what's happening. Right, right. You know, sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Can you guys speak about any of the specific challenges you've had in sustaining the farm that would actually be helpful for other people? You know, to just know some of the things because obviously, it's as we've spoken about earlier, it's not just a romantic notion to begin a farm. It takes yeah. a lot of commitment and passion and devotion, really, to the soil. And so I'm wondering what you guys, you know, what was your, is there one greatest challenge you guys have had or anything specific you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean. challenges <laughs> for growing things. Uh, they, you know, plants are resilient and they do want to live, but quickly in the Los Angeles climate, things will die when they're not watered. And so I think, Keeping everything hydrated is kind of our main focus uh -huh. in farming in Los Angeles. And I think that's a constant struggle with coyotes. They often chew through our irrigation. So there's mm -hmm. geysers of water when we turn on uh, the irrigation. It's, okay. It can be just a big challenge as well as just the physical sustaining of getting up early every day and working hard on your feet. and. Um, I've always had such a, a appreciation for everybody that works in any kind of physical labor because it mm -hmm. is so tiring every day. Yeah, they like sleep well though, at least. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sleep very well. And, you and know. I think you know, anytime starting like a new new farm on on land that hasn't been grown on, it's it's a process, you know. And and if you're looking at it. From like a business perspective, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it takes time, uh, and the way that we kind of farm takes time. It takes time to build that soil biology. It takes right. time to build soil structure, mm -hmm. um, and if if you're doing a lot of the practices well, um, it can happen quickly for sure. But you know, the beds even now, you know, and we're we're kind of two years in. I mean, we've been building beds. Mm -hmm. still building beds and so those beds that we build you know it's going to be we'll get harvestable crops out of them but it'll be you know a year before you know we're really seeing a lot of the benefits that we're working towards right and, and even now they're still you know on the upswing rather than like where we'd want them so even from a business perspective, you know, you imagine or you're, you're planning and you have kind of these like projections, mm -hmm. uh, but for the first few years, you know, they're definitely not going to work out, you know, as you plan. Later on, they're not going to necessarily work out, but for different <laughs> reasons, uh, you know, but in the beginning, it's just, uh, you know, it can be a struggle and sometimes it can be like disheartening, you mm -hmm. know, when, you know, like we have different beds that still like they certain crops they don't grow well right you know? but that's just the life of a, far, of a farmer isn't it you have to accept that you know not everything is going to work out and that's that's the reality yeah. of farming yeah 
Yeah, and I think, you know, especially in the beginning, it's like you want to take on so much. And Mm -hmm. and we've definitely done this in the past uh, where we kind of take on and still do. uh, (laughs) uh, uh, You know, where we've like, like a CSA, for instance, can be pretty stressful, you know, because you're really kind of committing to having produce available. Right, um, not knowing what, yeah, exactly. There's already yeah, having a diversity, you know, and so uh, you want like a range of things. Um, and so that can be kind of pretty stressful. And so I think always the challenge is really like making a plan that has some safety uh-huh. um, built into it, yeah. Flexible clientele seem to be key. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's really nice part of urban farming as well is that, you know, it's, relationship building. Yeah, and people can come and like see the farm and kind of get a better understanding of, of what it's looking like week to week, like the space that we're using and some of the challenges that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really able to like get a a sense of like the, the rhythm of the farm and a better understanding of like you know some of those challenges that we face as we try to grow food you know for them what has been is there something that has been the most a more successful or the most successful aspect of what you guys offer because you have your csa boxes you have your floral bouquets and you also service to restaurants and private clientele so i'm wondering is there one segment of that that's really kind of like your bread and butter like that's really what's sustaining you the most or is it all kind of um equal opportunity you know right now it's a pretty good split and so we started with wholesale which is really nice especially in the beginning because you know it's like i can just tell them what we have available a week ahead and it doesn't necessarily need to be like a certain thing Um, it gives you a bunch more flexibility like if something happens and we lose a bed it's not as big a deal. Right. Um, and so that's really nice because it can give you some flexibility. Um, and if you would need to take the week off, usually it's fine. I mean, especially in LA, it's not like we're the only source of produce. <laughs> we're like extremely fresh produce. Almost everything comes from this climate. Yeah. So, so there's, there's advantages of that. And then selling... Now, as we, we kind of transition and, and kind of seems like we will be transitioning more to like direct to consumer mm-hmm. um, because we now have like more time. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's so that's really nice. <laughs> she shakes well, her head. Okay. Time is tricky. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's like a, I think an old farm saying is you never have an, the only thing you don't have enough of is time. time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. Well, Lily, um, what time does your guys' day start, given that you're out on the farm? I mean, are you up at five? That's, I've been more attuned to the sunset and sunrise this year than I ever have in my entire life. Like, I can tell you to the minute at what point the sun is up and what point the sun goes down. So in I the summer, that. it was, you know, waking up at sunrise and then working until sunset so we could work at 9.30 at mm-hmm. night throughout the summer and now we're back inside around uh-huh. 5 30 which is uh-huh. super helpful because in los angeles there's no off season mm-hmm. and right. that's been a super tricky part of getting used to growing in this climate is that we actually can grow year round and so 
working in times <laughs> and regenerate our lives and like feel like a human again is tricky. So right, you to get that hibernation time, right? Exactly. Yeah, I miss a cold a cold winter where you don't have to worry about the plants, but here it's just tricky. So. Yeah, you feel uh, guilty probably if you <laughs> take time. Yeah, off. like you're always you're always expected to be growing at all times because it can grow yeah. year round. So you should exactly. be. So yeah, that's certainly a challenge. Can you guys speak a little bit about your soil as far as the infiltration rates of your soil? Were you having a lot of runoff in the beginning, or you had the grasses growing? So I'm just wondering what your soil was doing during any. Well, we haven't really probably had a whole lot of rain, but that you've experienced. Yeah. But I'm wondering. The, the first year we got on the land, it was uh, the, the, certainly the rainiest year I've ever experienced. And it was cool to see the hillside is really, it just acts as a sponge. And I was like shocked and uh, it just soaked up so much water and had zero visible runoff. So that was exciting and heartening to see. And as the grass grew super tall, I was like, this is amazing. It can grow things. Uh -huh. As we work along the contour and build our soil structure and increase that infiltration rate, I think it's getting a lot better and becoming more drought tolerant and able yeah. to take up water a lot better. The, you know, we live in like a, a canyon. Um, and so there is a lot of runoff and a lot of erosion, especially early in the season when the, the grass isn't there. Uh, like during a big rain, you go out to the street, it's like, I mean, it's pretty steep. Right. And so, you know, you can see like dirt running down. Um, you and know, it makes you, does it make you want to cry when you see that? Because it doesn't <laughs> have to be that yeah. way. It shouldn't right. be. And so, I mean, I think that's, that's part of it in terms of like increasing the soil's ability to soak up water and, and reducing runoff because um, even just the contour lines and, and how it steps down just slows the water um, as it goes right. down the hill. Sure. Um, and having plants there too, plants act as like a resistor and something that will slow water and reroute it and so all of that will help yeah. the resilience of the hillside. And But I can't, I can't remember the figures kind of off the top of my head, but during our soil tests, they tested like the infiltration in the beds and mm -hmm. then infiltrations just up the hill where we haven't and it was like you I know i think off the top of my head i think within our beds it was taking 30 seconds for the water no and then up above was taking two minutes oh yeah i mean i don't remember exactly but it's like something like that yeah, yeah a big difference so like it's four like or five times faster the water um, yeah, I think, I think that education is so important for people to even understand what that means, the infiltration rate. And when you see what it is like to actually see soil that can actually hold water, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot yeah, of and, and, right, exactly. And, and also, like, you know, when you look at after a rainstorm, like, we could go up the hill and dig, and it's, like, dry underneath, mm -hmm. you know, um, versus in the beds where it's working its way it's down. Way down. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, thank you both so much for what you're doing. You're an incredible inspiration for everyone here that lives here and wants to grow food and address climate change and sequester carbon and all the incredible things that you guys are doing to also what you're doing is rebalancing the hydrological cycle and connecting people to their food sources. 
And uh, I'm just wondering, can you guys share how can people connect with you? What are the places they can learn about your volunteer days and uh, just your CSAs, the food, you know, direct to consumer, all of these things that you guys offer? Where Can you give some links? And Sure, yeah. Thank you so much. We're just so incredibly honored that you, you wanted to hear. I'm sorry that we babbled, but I'm just so honored and so grateful for Ecojustice Radio for bringing all of the voices um, that are so important in this world to the forefront. So thank you for that. This is a huge honor. We're so excited to talk with you. Um, if you want to learn more about the farm, we have Instagram, and that's av33farm. Mm -hmm. It's our handle. And then we also have av33farm.com, and that's where you can purchase flowers and produce, and we'll put starts up there if we have extras, mm -hmm. and that's a constantly updating. So check back week after week, and we hope to be increasing our availability but and so we're sorry if it's sold out <laughs> yeah yeah you're always welcome to email us well. exactly um, yeah and then we'll be definitely the focus for next year is putting more and more information for like growers and um on both the website and the instagram um and hopefully being able to do more kind of in-person um Classes and, and classes. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be, like you said, more and more of this educational piece coming down the pipe. And it's just, it's needed. And, um, you know, you guys seem more than willing to share. So we're, <laughs> we'll yeah, we're excited, yes. excited to get back to being able to have people on, you know, larger groups on the farm. Have tours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys again. And uh, we hope to have you back on the show. And we look forward to you just continuing to grow and uh, regreen this. Uh, this place where we are now. Thank, thank you, you. Thank so, you so much. much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you to our guests today, Regenerative Farmers Eric Tomasini and Ali Greer, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. This has been A Farm Grows in LA, Urban Farming with Avenue 33. Please connect with us on social media at Ecojustice Radio and SoCal 350. If you like what you heard and you want others to be informed, subscribe to our podcast, share the episodes, and help us continue our efforts by donating to our show at ecojusticeradio.org. You have been listening to Ecojustice Radio, a project of SoCal 350. The show can be found on all major podcast apps and at ecojusticeradio.org. Created by Mark and J.P. Morse, executive producer Jack Eit, engineer Blake Lampkin, interview hosted by Carrie Kim, and original music by Javier Cadre. And until next time, remember, the power is yours. <laughs> <laughs>